My name is Clancy. I'm an alcoholic. I'm very glad to be here tonight. Glad to be at this affair. Glad to enjoy the weekend very much. I uh, someone asked me earlier this evening who was at at the uh, Cornhusker Roundup a couple weeks ago to uh, tell one of my experiences that I told there. They thought it was symbolic and beautiful, so I'll tell you. <laughs> Three weeks ago, I was in Cincinnati with Dick and Peggy, and I was in the airport, and I was, went to the washroom. I was waiting for and I sat in the stall, and a guy sat in the next stall next to me. I just sat there doing what you do in bathrooms, and, and this voice suddenly said in the next stall, Hi there. <laughs> That's odd. Can't be meaning me. He said, the person in their voice says, What are you doing tonight? And I said, Well, really, if it's any business of yours, I'm going to go to an AA convention. I'm going to, and I intend to hear a good speaker tonight. Thank you. And there was kind of a pause. And then the voice says, We could have some fun tonight. And, you know, I'm an old man. What is this? And I. I said, really, I appreciate your offer, but I really don't want to be bothered anymore. I've, I've got other things in my mind. <laughs> and the voice said, are you sure you don't? We could really have some fun. And I said, look, now, damn it, just why don't you do what you're doing there and you let me do what I'm doing and just forget it. And pretty soon the voice said, I'll have to call you back. This son of a bitch in the next booth keeps talking. <laughs> I've known a lot of heartaches in my life. <laughs> but this is, this is a, we've had very good speakers this weekend. Those of you who just came in late, you missed some good speakers. Last night, Dick gave a very good talk, and uh, this morning, Kenna gave an excellent talk. We're very proud of her in our group, and because something came up, I had to miss the Aladon speaker, but I will listen to her talk next week on tape, and I will... Uh, if I find any errors in logic, I will call her and tell her. <laughs> and tomorrow, tomorrow morning, of course, Peggy will be a, always an excellent speaker. It really is a pleasure to be with these folks because I know what they're going to say, kind of. Except for talking about them, but they always talk about the basic facts of AA. And they're all active uh, in sponsorship, which we are here for. You know, they're... There seems to be different types of alcoholics, and no, uh, over the years they kind of evolved various types. There's a type of alcoholic apparently who, who drinks and to all intents and purposes uh, is an alcoholic, but something drastic happens or they have a death in the family or a economically challenged, they lose their job or something terrible happens and they're threatened somehow and they suddenly realize the nature of their problem and they quit and they never drink again. And these, there's a bunch of these people around. There's also a type of alcoholic who seems to get physically addicted as well as emotionally addicted, and they have to be withdrawn. These are the people the treatment centers were originally designed for to physically remove them off alcohol little by little, and uh, finally they're off, and each step of the way they say, look what you're doing to your family, look what you're doing to your home, look what you're doing to your job. And by the time they get off, they are, they quit. 
That's why so many companies supported their employees going through treatment centers to get to that point where they realize the nature of their problem. And then there's another type of alcoholic who, by all intents and purposes, a regular alcoholic, and something terrible happens, they're threatened or led death in the family, or they're economically childish, or something dreadful happens, and they realize the nature of their problem, and they quit. And sooner or later, always begin to drink again. And there's another type, who, much the same type, brought off by treatment centers, and learn the nature of their problems, and swear that they will not do this again, and sooner or later, they always start in again. And these are the people that have baffled scientists and doctors and religious people and and families and everybody forever because there's no reason they should start in again and nobody can understand why they do it and sometimes the people involved have no idea why they did it and it's just such an amazing thing. You know, when Bill Wilson wrote our book, he didn't really know the various types of alcoholics. I suppose he sensed them as much as we do. But that's why again and again in our book he describes alcoholics of our type. He doesn't tell what the other types are, but alcoholics of our type. And our type are the people who seem to have a great deal of great deal of frustration that we bring to people around us and situations around us because no matter what happens, just when we get people's hopes up, we go again. I don't suppose there's anybody in this room who hasn't seen that look of terrible pained accusation and sadness in someone's face when they look at you and you're they say, oh but you promised you promised and it makes you feel awful bad and there's not much to do except and it makes you feel bad to say oh get away from me and leave me alone god damn it because you feel so bad and you have no explanation what are you going to tell them and that's the sort of problem that faces people like us and we are the people who most of us as has been said estimated Today in America, where there's more sobriety than any place in the history of the world, there's never been anything like this. We are in the heartbeat of America. And uh, where I live, in the West Coast, in the Southern California, and up here a little bit too, but Southern California is kind of the heartbeat of AA. In the world, apparently, there's more so- sober alcoholics, apparently, in Southern California than in New York and Illinois combined. A lot of people still think, Akron is the heartbeat of AA. Akron has the same relationship to AA that uh, Bethlehem has to Christianity. (laughs) Something nice happened there once, but not for a long time. (laughs) And with all this sobriety and everything available, it is still estimated about 95% of alcoholics still die drunk in America. Or is it a direct result of drinking? And they may call it something else in a lot of cases. But and why would this be? It's, it's so unnecessary. It is so absolutely unnecessary. And that's why we have to get through the nature of the damn problem. Why is this necessary? I've been reading. It's kind of a hobby over the years. I, uh, I've been reading. A, I started working in a medical corporation. I was about two years sober. And I got reading some the first ads for treatments of alcoholism that they offered to the doctors in medical journals, something called Librium, that was really going to make the difference. And uh, it did make a difference. It made them all groggy before they drank. Uh, I've read various explanations of alcoholism over the years, 
And, I, and it's nice to say that medicine is just about now just about caught up with AA. They just almost after all these years finally got to a point where we've been since 1939. And this book is kind of interesting. It was written by a guy who didn't know enough to write it. And, you know, he, we, we joke about that sometimes. Dick was saying that the book was divinely inspired, he felt. And I feel it's divinely inspired because the guy who wrote it didn't know enough to write it. You know, they, they say it's a miracle. And that's a difficult word because AA uses the word miracle very cheaply. Everyone's trying to hear some goof get up and says, I got up early this morning at 5.30. And I looked at the eastern sky and there was the sun coming up. And it was a miracle. <laughs> God had given me another day. <laughs> get up early tomorrow, have another one, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Miracles have to be something that are not explainable, that are not easily explicable, and uh, they have to. And that's that's why this book, you know, a lot of books have been written, but this book is uh, was written by a guy, and, and who uh, he had no background in psychology. In fact, most of the people surrounding him were drunk again. They weren't all staying sober. Very few people staying sober. By the time he, when he wrote that book, he said, "We are a group of over a hundred men and women who have stayed sober a year." Later, he. He confessed shamefacedly there's only 79 as far as he knew, but he thought 100 would sound better. That's, you know, we all know that. But he, uh, why would they call this book a miracle? You know, I know when you're new, at least when I was new, I'm sure when you're new, you think, well, he was sober three years when he wrote it. My God, you should know enough to write a book when you're three years sober. Been hanging around here for three years. And it would seem that way but until you get to be three years sober, then you realize I don't know quite enough to write a book. Yet. <laughs> By the time you're five years sober, you just kind of be nice to people three years sober. Still going to meetings, Jimmy, keep it up. We're all behind you, you know. By the time you're ten years sober, you hate to send people three years sober to get your coffee. <laughs> Is that two creams and one sugar or two sugars? And, oh, never mind, I'll get it myself. By the time you're 20 years sober, you hate to have people three years sober unattended on your property. <laughs> yeah, just nothing, nothing and this loser, three years sober, had not held it. <laughs> Didn't like my talk, eh? <laughs> I was going too fast, and she sprained a finger. Poor girl. <laughs> I wonder why I'm only invited back to you every ten years. I try to, <laughs> try to be nice, Jesus. Uh, but he was surrounded by failures, and losers, and uh, and he wrote this book for the worst motives. He tried to sell it so he could start some hospitals. And he wrote this book, and they think it's a miracle because it's changed more alcoholic lives in the last 62 years, 63 years, than all other therapies combined in the history of mankind. Changed more alcoholic lives. Now, that's a miracle, and that's inexplainable. And yet, with all of that going for it, it's still, we are still find, surrounded by people dying from alcoholism. 
if this is a regular meeting of AA, that isn't exactly a regular meeting because most people are a little more involved to come here, but a number of people in this room will die drunk. Not because AA doesn't work. Maybe me, maybe you, I don't know. I remember my sponsor told me that if you don't do these things, you'll die drunk. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> but later when he got mad at AA and stopped doing them and got drunk and died, he, he convinced me he was right. Because this isn't necessarily how you feel at any given moment. It's talking about the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And who nobody can, nobody can really tell how they're going to maintain their spiritual condition. There is a person in this room who can guarantee me how you're going to feel when you wake up tomorrow morning. If you're going to wake up grouchy or happy or whatever it might be. Because we're human beings, that's all. And why would this be? And I've been reading these articles about alcoholism and that we're finally catching up. And it suddenly struck me a few years ago that the most, that of all the things I've read, the most absolutely right on description is the other thing I read a hundred times and heard it read a hundred times and thought it was just stupid. That's the first chap, first couple of pages of chapter three. That is really the description of alcoholism, at least as far as we're concerned, better than anybody for alcoholics of our type. I know there's some new people here tonight. You may look around a diverse bunch. You have uh, different colors and sizes and shapes and uh, ages and stages of disintegration. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, Sandy. I'm just kidding. She's my favorite. Uh, and what do you have in common with these people? Well, you don't have a hell of a lot. Of, I'll tell you that. You don't have a hell of a lot in common. You can tell by looking at them. But there is... There is uh, in fact, there's a lot of things they don't even have in common with themselves. I don't know what that means, but that I like that. I must listen to my tape sometime and see what I mean. But one thing, I remember after I was sober, I began to realize and zero in on one of the great things that's there is that small thing that just says, you know, one thing, if you're an alcoholic, one thing you've done that I've done that we've all done that are alcoholic, somewhere along the line you have voluntarily or involuntarily accepted the obsession that somehow, someday, you will control and enjoy your drinking. And it says the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it through the gates of insanity, of insanity, through the gates into insanity and death. Now, why would people have to accept that obsession? That's one of the hallmarks of our type of alcoholic. And it goes on to say that uh, we, uh, we have occasional brief recoveries, followed always by a still worse relapse. And if we hadn't been, none of us would be here. We'd still be on our brief recovery. But you followed by still relapse. And then it gets to a point that I've, I've always enjoyed that phrase because it's just, just such well-written phrase. I tell you, you get to a point of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I remember when I first read that, I thought, that's how drunk these people get. They just get that way. But that isn't what it means at all, I don't think. That's the way you feel after you're sober again. 
and now you have to explain why, and you can't, and you are pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralized. And it goes on to give a little funny paragraph. Sometimes people laugh at it, but it really is kind of touches. I look at that paragraph, and it matches my life to a larger extent, and I'm sure to yours, because there's nothing so different about it. Things we have done to control and enjoy our drinking, changing from one kind of drinking to another. In this, they say scotch to brandy, but it could be anything. Drinking beer only. Jesus, I've done that a lot. Drinking only at home. Tried that. Drinking never at home. Tried that. Swore off. Tried that. I did not accept a voluntary commitment to an asylum, but I accepted an involuntary <laughs> And I was pissed about it, too. Okay. <laughs> Did they ever see anybody commit suicide before? My God. Uh, re- read spiritual literature? I did that. I mean, God, the, uh, what's that Emmett Fox book? Emmett Fox book. Every, every slipper in the world has read that baby, you know. <laughs> Don't understand it, but it's read it. Maybe if I rub it against my head. <laughs> I read philosophy. But at the end of that paragraph, there's a funny little sentence that says, uh, we could increase the list ad infinitum. That means we could increase this list indefinitely. And we certainly could, because we all have our own ways that we were going to stop. We were going to find a way to stop. We're going to stop for my kids. I'm going to stop for the job. I was going to stop because my life was in the... And really intend to stop. And never once realize that the quest to control and and enjoy my drinking for people like me is impossible. Because I can drink and control it, but I can't, then I can't enjoy it. You just do that for a little while, the hell with this, you know. Then I drink and enjoy it, but then I don't control it. But I always, it's always just beyond the rest, just, uh, I could, if I could, you know, and looking for an answer, looking for an answer. And, the, and people like us are just lost. And people come to A all over the country and don't last and die. I bet, I'll bet you, the end of the talk, I don't know what the membership of AA is worldwide, maybe 2 million, but I'll bet there's got to be 20 million people who have come to AA. And, not, and most of them didn't stay. We say in our book, rarely have we seen a person fail. They think, well, what? We should all stay. Who have thoroughly followed our path. But nobody ever, hardly anybody stays long enough to follow our path. That's the problem. And so we are caught in this big problem. Why is this? And people all over the country are upset and worried and lost and getting drunk. Which is why, I suppose, we have a sponsorship conference. So, as was read tonight, so you aren't afraid of sponsorship. People come here afraid of sponsorship. I did once upon a time. Come to realize that sponsorship is is probably the greatest help through that morass of misunderstandings and doubt. Because not only do you have to learn things here, but you have to have somebody be helping you while you unlearn the things you already know when you come here that are wrong. And that's the lethal part. I mean, I, you can give people advice forever. And they can't even get through it. I know, but I, I know better than that. I, you know, and they make it terrible. In my life, I, uh, you know, the nature of my work today... I do something that probably none of you do. Uh, Tuesday morning again, 
I'll go to work after Labor Day, and I'll get out of my car downtown, and I'll step over bodies of men and women dying from alcoholism and drug addiction. And I'll, some of them I'll know, and I'll say hello. I'll go to my office and work all day and come out at night, and I'll step over the bodies of dying men and women to get to my car and uh, go home out by the ocean. And it's a, you'd think that would be a terrible thing, but it really isn't terrible anymore. It used to be terrible. It isn't anymore. Nothing is terrible after you're used to it. Nothing is wonderful after you're used to it. You know, that's a hard thing to remember. We've joked about that sometimes when, when newcomers will call up and say that magic word that just makes sponsors go crazy. I want to talk to you about my new relationship. <laughs> now, if you're smart, you'll have an aha machine on your desk and you put the phone down. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they say these great things like, I know I thought the last one was was it, but this one, I'll tell you, my God, when I saw her walking out of that detox, I just knew. <laughs> it's not a very mature reaction, but sometimes I find myself going, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you hate to have to tell them the bad news, pal. It isn't going to be wonderful very long. <laughs> oh, but I, yes, it is. We we were having lunch today, and we reached for the salt, and our fingers touched, and there was a spark. I swear to God, there was a spark. I could see the spark. And you hate to have to tell them the bad news. Listen, it's just it changes. Three years from now, in the in the event one in a million that your relationship lasts till the end of the year, <laughs> and then if you even get married, and maybe three years from now have a little bungalow, maybe two little tykes crawling around the floor, and you'll be sitting at the table with the girl you love, you'll be having lunch, and you reach for the salt, and your fingers will touch, and you'll say, "Give me the goddamn salt." <laughs> nature of life. Because nothing is wonderful after you're used to it. It can be grand, like love, I suppose. Love gets deeper and richer in some situations. Uh, things, But that tingly infatuation doesn't last. And it isn't terrible. I used to feel sad when I used to see these people dying in front of me, go out once in a while and they're putting a blanket over one and taking them away. And uh, you think I'd really be terrible. But uh, it isn't. I've been watching them now for 28 years. And I used to lie on that sidewalk right there myself. Now, why wouldn't I try to help these people? And I used to. I used to. That was a great thing. I used to pick them up and clean them up and straighten them out and get them jobs and do things. And uh, they'd be on the sidewalk again four or five days later. And they didn't know why and I didn't know why. Then I one day suddenly realized, why can't I help these people? Why is it I tell them the truth, show them the way out, and they won't, they get them, they're not getting it? And suddenly I had to realize, why did I slip year after 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 year? 
The worst years of my life came when good people were trying to help me. They weren't bad years because they were trying to help me, but those were the years that I was really disintegrating, and good people tried to help me. And I, uh, the last day I drank, standing on the street corner in Los Angeles, my front teeth kicked out and everything gone, and dying on the street. If some guy would have said to me, look, you're dying. Why don't you, you've been going to A for 10 years now. Why don't you go back there and admit you're an alcoholic and do something with it? I have to tell him, you don't understand. My, I'm not really an alcoholic. Not really. I know there's something wrong with me. I know there's something wrong with me since I was a little boy. There's something missing in me. And I don't know what it is, but people seem to recognize it when I get close to them. And I, I can put on a good front sometimes, and I can carry it off for a little while, but the imperfections and flaws show up pretty soon when people are close to me. And I don't seem to get along with people. I have a little difficulty sustaining one-to-one relationships I thought about that later, too. That's something you might think about if you have trouble sustaining one-to-one relationships if you're an alcoholic. And I didn't learn this until after I was sober a while by being to piece it together by working with others. But it's this. When you don't have much self-worth or self-acceptance and you're in a relationship with someone, you must get your self-worth from them. You must get your acceptance from them. They must give you your self-worth. And so all I really ask of people that I'm close to in a one-to-one relationship, and I don't even know I'm doing it, but I do it again, and I've done it again and again and again. All I ask of you is that you treat me special all the time. (laughs) And no matter how much somebody loves you, no one's going to treat you special all the time. After a while, one of the marks of acceptance is they don't treat you quite so special. They just, hi, how are you? I guess they don't they don't like me anymore. Well I never liked them anyway the I think about it. But I, as soon as the slightest t- lowering of that glad to see you nonsense, and I know that our relationship is over and probably just starting to build into something wonderful. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm gonna cut you off before you cut me off, because you've hurt my feelings. And little by little, all these problems, and I, they weren't there all the time in every situation, but they were a lot. I look back over my life, I suppose the number one emotion I can remember in my life, I've had a lot, all the emotions everybody else has had, but my number one emotion was hurt feelings. It seemed like somebody was always hurting my feelings, not accepting me, or, not, or patronizing me. To this day, I have difficulty with people patronizing me. And I tried to overcome it. I don't show it now. But I still have a little difficulty. And, you know, when you're working for people, sometimes they patronize you. And if you want to eat next week, you just smile. <laughs> but think, someday I'll get you, you dirty bastard. Uh, but it isn't bad like it used to be. That's one of the things that uh, I've had to deal with in my life. What the? Hey, uh, <laughs> when I stood in the street corner and I was dying, I would have bet my life I was not an alcoholic and did bet my life I was an alcoholic. And I had no idea that that would be my last morning drinking until now. 
because if I there was no reason to stop drinking. I've stopped drinking for good reasons. I've stopped drinking from because when I was drunk in jail one night, my son died and they couldn't find me, and I I felt so bad about it over a period of the next few days. I committed suicide. And they put me in the insane asylum and things like that. And I've quit jobs, quit drinking for a lot of good reasons. Now, why would I? I didn't know how to explain to people. The reason I know I'm not an alcoholic is that alcohol is not really my problem. It is when I drink. But what I don't know how to understand to people is that when I don't drink, it gets worse sometimes. The one thing I could always know all the years I went to AA, I didn't learn how to stay sober. I learned what an alcoholic was. And if you're kind of new tonight, you may wonder, well, what's an alcoholic? I'll tell you what it is. We all know what it is. People driving by out here knows what it is. There are people who have trouble with alcohol and they, hand, they don't handle it very well. And they come to A and get sober and they feel better. If you have a, a speaker meeting in your town and you go to a speaker meeting once a week at least, I'll guarantee you, you will hear fifth, the next 52 weeks, you will hear the same story. It will not seem the same story because there will be different backgrounds and interpretations and theories and concepts. But the implicit thing that will be in every talk is this. I used to drink. My life was terrible. I came to and got sober and cleaned up my act, and now I'm feeling better. Everything else is background. And I, part of that I could always accept. But I, I can talk drinking stories with anybody. I had a, I'm kind of a bizarre personality when I start drinking. I'm a kind of frightened and quiet personality when I was sober. But when I'm drinking, I, I, I remember a psychiatrist told me that I was... This was because I'd been repressed by the Norwegian Lutheran Church. <laughs> I'm glad to be in Seattle where there's some people who understand this concept. <laughs> Sick of talking to those Catholics in New York. But here there's, there's only very few pockets of Norwegian Lutherans. Uh, we've never trusted the ones out here because they moved to a warm climate. <laughs> Three or four years ago, I was talking in Oslo, Norway, and they took me up to where my grandparent, my grandfather came from in the 1880s, up around Gudbrandsdalen. And, uh, and I remember that story, how he and his three brothers came to America and with a whole wave of Norwegian immigration, and they all settled, you know, to get away from that damn climate and just to get to find America, and they all settled in Wisconsin, Minnesota, <laughs> North Dakota, and South Dakota, the, Spent the next 50 years saying, Jesus is cold here too. The weaklings came to Washington. The ones who wanted to get web feet or whatever they have out there. But I, he's, I remember, and I seemed right to me. He said, you were repressed. And I was a repressed kid. I didn't know I was repressed. I just that's the door was with the church. That's how you live. But as he pointed out, when you drink, you, you kind of break loose and you're free. And I said, yeah, that's, that's me, doctor. <laughs> I remember trying to explain that to an arresting officer a couple times. Said, Shut up. Get in the goddamn car. <laughs> but what I didn't know how to explain, I couldn't even put a finger on it after I was sober while trying to describe it, is this. I got sober... And what happens to me, unlike, you know, I could talk drinking stories. You want to talk drinking stories? I talk drinking stories. Talk about being in jail, talk about work, being in different places, exotic things I've done, bizarre things. You want to talk about uh, AA? I'm glad to talk about AA. I've been in AA in New York. You want to talk about AA in San Francisco or 
Los Angeles or uh, not so much Los Angeles, but Chicago or Milwaukee or Minneapolis or Dallas or El Paso cities I've lived to continue the regional differences among about AA. But the problem I have with AA is this. Unlike alcoholics, it is when I get sober and clean up my act, that's when my life gets painful. And how do you explain that when everybody around you tells you how wonderful it is? And I can do it for a while sometimes when I have various reasons. I knew my boy died. I did quite a, made quite a while. But most of the time it's a few days or maybe a week when I'm really tired to stop drinking. What happens is this. One night, sooner or later, somebody sneaks into my bedroom in the middle of the night and puts an invisible spring in my gut. And the next morning when I get up, they start to tighten it. And then little by little comes the irritability and the restlessness and the uh, don't choose to be patronized to tell me about my drinking. I don't like this whole crap and... uh, the book puts it so well, restless and discontent, uh, can't really put it any better than that, but that's what it boils down to. And eventually I get I get intolerant, I get cross, and I get tired, and I get sick of all this crap. And I learned when I was 15 years old on a ship in the Pacific Ocean that a few drinks is the only thing I know that cuts that feeling quickly. And I, I stop drinking, but eventually I drink. And I don't drink because I'm a drinker. I drink because I'm a feeler. But how do you explain that to anybody? If I didn't have all these goofy emotions, if I if I wasn't described in AA, I remember hearing that read, thinking, my God, that's what they're talking about me. Grave emotional problems. They know about people like me. I wish my problem was alcohol like these alcoholics and go and return to God and live comfortably ever after. But what do you do when you're just, there's something wrong inside. There's something not clicking. And there's bad thoughts and bad feelings and bad, just, you know, you're bad and you act bad sometimes. It just things go to hell in it. You have a few drinks, and when I have a few drinks, I can go from being a bad nothing into a lot of times whatever I want to be. I can be a... Can be, I can tell people, I'm bars, tell people what I, what I am, absolutely not what I am at all. But I believe I am that for a while. It's just great. And I can do things and I feel ill, I don't feel ill at ease, I feel comfortable. You know, and they, they talk about that craving, that phenomenon of craving. No one has ever been able to describe the phenomenon of craving. But I have a, I have my own theory on it, which I may share. Are you ready? <laughs> she just gave me the signal. <laughs> but my, my theory is this. I think that for people like me drink, I don't know about you, but when I drink, I get up there and I get on a, I'm in a different mode, just a different personality. And pretty soon it starts to fade and I have to instinctively keep drinking to hold it. That, to me, is the craving. i got to hold it without even being aware of it. I'm holding that feeling. The trouble is you keep doing it and you get drunk. But for a while, you're holding that edge. And there may be a reason later if you become physically addicted to it, so you drink. I have to keep drinking for that reason. But, I mean, the psychological addiction to me is that I'm trying to hold that being, trying to hold that edge. And sometimes I get dizzy and sick from it 
before I want to, and I maybe go in the washroom and put my finger down my throat and throw up so I can go back and get that edge again. And I don't know how to explain to people. If you give me a way to get that edge, I will never drink again. If you find me a way to fill these holes that are inside of me and all the words won't change it, I'll be glad to do it. And all the pretty words, return to God, you say, if God exists, I am damned. I don't know about anybody else, but it's like Hitler said, you give me their minds till they're 12 and a little bit of them will be Nazis till they're 90. And in my church, by the time I was 12, I knew I was a bad boy. And and when you break two or three commandments, you just instinctively know you're in trouble. If you break more than that, you forget about it. And when I came to AA, a number of times I remember thinking, I've broken all ten commandments. You know what to... There better not be a God. If there's a God, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because people say, I'm, I'm sober through God's grace. I guess that means God goes to Amy and says, you two can stay sober. You can't because you're bad. You two can. You three can't. Because there's people sitting on both sides of them who can't stay sober. But this guy says, with God's grace. What the hell has God's grace got for me? If God's grace exists and it's, that's what you have to depend on for sobriety, I'm dead. And nothing I will do or say can change it. I want to say one thing in the postscript to that. I, after a sober while, I realized I'd exaggerated. I had not broken all Ten Commandments. I have never coveted my neighbor's manservant. <laughs> but I've been tempted. That's why I kind of find myself, I knew all about AA standing on a street corner in Los Angeles with the rain falling and my teeth kicked out and my clothes gone, my family gone, my career gone. I could not, probably the worst feeling of all, you lose your family, that's bad, you lose your career, and that's all very bad. But I'll tell you, it's a feeling I'm sure some people in this room have had. When you suddenly find yourself standing someplace and there is no friendly direction. There's no place you could go back to and say you're sorry. There's no, there's nobody who cares anymore as far as I know. You're just, you could die right there and just people are going to say ho-hum and step over you, pal. Now what, that's the terrible, the worst feeling I know. You stand there and you watch yourself drip out your own sleeve and nobody cares. Now why in the world would I be sober now and be sober a long time and in Seattle at a sponsorship conference and, uh, I was thinking about that this morning a little bit. I sometimes get, like all human beings, I get uh, tired and heavy laden, weary and heavy laden, sometimes just my own, inside my own head, not for any particular reason. And I sometimes think, well, what good have I ever done? Maybe I'm just still bad. But I was having breakfast this morning with five people here that I sponsor. And we sat and laughed and talked for a while. And it was a... And I thought to myself, well, that's something I've done. I've helped five people. You know, somebody else might have helped them better than I did even, but I, at least I acted as an agent. But how in the world would I get in that situation in the first place? And it, it boils down in my life to absolutely to sponsorship. I didn't want a sponsor. I didn't seek one, and I didn't want one. But I, that m- the morning the rain was falling, I walked out to an AA club. I thought I could maybe hustle some dough or something, because when I was doing well and went to A, I always give people money. I thought maybe somebody give me a little money. And I went to this A club, and I'd been in there before drunk, and they uh, 
weren't glad to see me, and I wasn't glad to see them. And I hung around the club. And that that night there was a meeting, and I ate about four pounds of cake. And then they had a meeting about gratitude, and I almost puked it back up. And <laughs> I was just trying to stay out of the rain, really. And after that, everybody went home, and I I went up to the manager of the club, and I thought I better put on my newcomer look and make my move. I yeah. I have no place to stay, and I'm a newcomer, and I don't know what to do. I, I guess I was only about 126 pounds, but then I was just gaunt, sick, ugly, little puke. And the guy said, I got some good news for you, kid. A guy named Joe Quinn left an old 49 Merc in the parking lot last summer. doesn't run, but you can sleep in that. You want me to sleep in the abandoned car? <laughs> yeah, good idea. <laughs> I slept in an abandoned car and it was cold. I, uh, my mouth was bleeding again. I bit open some of the scabs. and It was just hideous. And I went back in the club in the morning. It was Sunday morning. I had a spiritual meeting. I had their damn old cake and listened to talk about God or Jesus or somebody who was after me. And I tried to... <laughs> I lurked all afternoon around that club, but saved my life that day, really. I found a little room in the back. I was wandering around looking maybe to have some money. And I found a little room in the back. There was a little old dusty black and white television in there. And I turned it on, and the damn thing worked. And I spent the afternoon watching a pro football game. And that saved my life. It just took my mind off of me for three hours, I guess. That night there was another meeting. I ate some more cake and... Slept in an abandoned car. This went on for days. I remember thinking, maybe I'm dead. <laughs> I really thought I might be dead because when I married a Catholic, I was told that what would happen. I would go to hell and that'd be it. The only thing I had dead wrong, they, they thought hell was hot and full of fire, and it wasn't. It's was full of cold rain and sick and. People talk to me about AA every day. <laughs> and this one, on. I, uh, I go up to Florida, up to uh, Toronto, every January. That tells you where I stand in the hierarchy of speakers. Yeah, all the good speakers in January down in Florida and Texas. <laughs> All Southern Conference, and I'm up there. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the North York Club has a day with Clancy I. If you can imagine what an exciting moment that is in the snow and ice, and, and in the morning they have a local speaker that I give a talk on maybe the history of AA or the traditions or something. Then they have a lunch and. In the afternoon, there's a question and answer meeting where the visiting authority answers questions from the little people. And, uh, <laughs> and some of the questions are really off the wall and it takes me a while to think of an answer, but I've discovered over the years that I have a natural facility while I'm thinking about the answer to weave a tapestry of verbal BS, you know, just... You know. <laughs> then there's another local speaker that at night I give my talk. A few years ago, I was talking, and a woman in the back said, Clancy, I have a question for you. If you don't mind, I wouldn't like one of your long answers. <laughs> I thought, somebody ought to slap that bitch. <laughs> but I'm a nice guy. I don't say anything. She 
every year you come up here. You talk about how long you slipped. You lost everything. You're just dying on the street. Now you've been sober forever. Everything you touch turns to gold, for God's sake. Could you just tell us as in a sentence or two, what was the difference? You always tell us about these things. How did it come about? I said, well, ma'am, you can't possibly put that in a sentence or two. That's a lot of things. And I thought to myself, but if you like to come up here, I'll snatch you bald, you old bag. <laughs> she, she threw off my rhythm is what she did. But that night I was having a shower before the meeting and an answer came. And it was a, but I wouldn't have used it. It was such a crappy little answer, it seemed like. But it, I, I like answers that have a little body, a little panache. I've said this so many times. I, there are new people here tonight. Most of the old timers know what I'm going to say, but you new people don't. I, I would like to have you leave here saying things like, Did you hear what Clancy said? <laughs> Never. Wet birds don't fly at night. <laughs> Did you hear what Clancy said? Never mind if the horse is blind. Keep loading the wagon. <laughs> now these answers mean nothing, but they give the newcomer hope. The answer I thought of was so ridiculous, I didn't want to tell her, I didn't want to say it. The answer was this. This was the first time I ever felt so bad that I let these idiots at AA order me around. And I didn't do it for any motive to get better, I just wanted to stay out of the rain. And that isn't much of a reason, is it? But what do I do? I start taking actions. What kind of actions do I take? Making amends? Turning over your life to God? No. Nah. I had to go to meetings in that club because otherwise I had to go back out in the rain. And so I'd sit in these meetings. And now in those days, there were, they hadn't invented styrofoam cups yet. So all meetings had porcelain cups. At the end of every meeting, somebody had to wash them. So they all, the old-timers got sick of washing them. They tried to find new goofs to wash them. I remember the guy said to me, one night, You there, boy, without the front teeth. You want to wash the dishes tonight? <laughs> If I had any strength, any strength left, I'd have said, no. I don't want to watch this tonight or tomorrow night or any other night. Why didn't you lick them off with that long, ugly tongue? <laughs> but I didn't want to go out in the rain, so I said, <laughs> yes, I really want to. <laughs> Another night, a guy said, we need someone to help stay light and mop up. How about you, kid, without the teeth? Can you do that? <laughs> Probably the worst of all, I was living in this abandoned car out there. It's just hideous. People were buying me a little food down then, but I remember the night the guy says, Jimmy won't be here to set up the chairs tomorrow night. How about you, kid? You live right here on the property. <laughs> and I just, I just lived in kind of a numb... <laughs> Talk about living a day at a time, boy. And I stayed sober for a few days, and that club was full of fanatics. And unfortunately, these fanatics, they maybe I hope you haven't got a group like this, but they if you stay sober any length of time at all, they're on you like a pack of wild dogs, you know. Just, have you got a sponsor yet? Time to get a sponsor. Better get a sponsor, haven't you? 
And I saw this actor coming in and out of the meeting, and I'd seen him in the movies, and I'd seen him in one movie anyway, his name was Bob Bailey. And he, the movie I saw him, he was just a character actor, but he was giving people money and helping them, and he had a good smile. And, and I'd been around A longer than he had, so I felt like I could control him to get this idiot to be my sponsor. I get some money from him. I get some teeth. I get some clothes. I'll go back to New York. Now at least my eyes are clear. I can tell him I've learned my lesson. Maybe get a job in an agency writing again. Save my money. Come back to Los Angeles someday. <laughs> Buy this club. Burn it down. <laughs> and I hope they're all in it, having a meeting. I never really realized the nature of that until I saw the movie Carrie some years later with that girl burned down the high school. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to pour blood on him too. God damn him, you know. I said, Bob, would you be my sponsor? He said, church, I want you to know, I want you to do what I tell you. Oh, sure, Bob. <laughs> and I've said this a million times. I'll say it one more time. I don't want to say it differently. I look back, that guy should have won the Academy Award for every loving role he ever played anywhere. Because they were foreign to his nature. They were, he was a right-wing fascist AA dictatorial pig is what he was. Now watch do this. Now go ahead and shake hands. Talk to this guy. I felt like Quasimodo. Look, Bob, I'm ringing the bell. I'm ringing the bell. And I've often thought, why would I take that crap from that guy? Because I, at that stage of my life, I didn't take crap from people. And I haven't for some time. I have, when I was still working, I have left, I've quit jobs that people would trade their butts to get because somebody gave me too much crap. You want to give me that? Get yourself another boy, pal, because I'm gone. I don't know how many nights in bars people come over and say, I've been listening to you mouth off all night long. You don't seem like you're very much to me. You don't think so? Why don't you try me, son of a bitch, and see how I am? And I get knocked on my can a lot. <laughs> but they know I'm half crazy and half tough, which isn't a bad reputation. I thought, why? You know, that attitude, I didn't even realize I had it. I heard a guy, when I was about 11 months sober, I heard a guy talking about that attitude. I had never heard it talked about before that. I never have heard it talked about since, except when I talk about it. And it's just an amazing thing. By that time, I'd already worked through it, so I wasn't looking for a breakthrough. But he talked about, and the reason he gave was the reason I would give tonight if I had to describe it. Because in my later, as my years went by, it became more and more obvious to me that inside I was a weakling. I was a sickly little weakling, emotional. I hate weaklings. And I hate me for being a weakling. And other people, I'm surrounded by manly men with manly lives. And I'm always, well, I wonder if they really like me. Or can I fit in? with the job? Well, my boss going to say something? And the answer to that is you, become, you develop an impervious facade. I'm fine. And one of the things about that impervious facade, of course, is that even when you go to AA, you can't accept any meaningful advice because that would indicate you were weak and you can't let anybody know you're weak. So I... Now, why would I take this crap from this guy? My, my sponsor. 
the man who saved my life. Why would I take crap from this guy? I found out later he didn't like me. <laughs> and I understand that because I was, I was the worst type of person that I know of to this day. A smart aleck, insolent loser. You know, they're just, you just want to take a, when I see him today, I just want to take a piss elm club and just <laughs> drive him right in the ground like a mumbly pig. You know, just, get him. Now, here's what I want to tell you about this. Oh, yeah, tell me about that. Well, Jesus Christ, give me a prayer. <laughs> God wants you to choke me. <laughs> but a lot of people didn't like me, I'm sorry to say, and he didn't like me. But he tried to talk to me, and he tried to help me. He took me with him a couple times and meetings. Because of him, I have taken people to meetings that I would, I'd hate to even have in my car. I hate to talk to, but I because I think about that. And somewhere along the line, either hearing him talk. A, a while back, I, I got a, somebody played a tape for me when I was five years sober, and I was explaining some things that I haven't talked about in 25 years, 30 years, 40 years. But he was talking about things, and somewhere along the line, I heard him talking about his feelings, and he said, "You know, my feelings are such that I never really thought I was an alcoholic. Never was." Because my problem is that I'm, I'm kind of weak inside. I don't feel very. I don't fit in very well, and people don't seem. To, I never seem to like me very much. I, I can't maintain one-to-one relationships, and I, I can put on a front, but it's so difficult to carry. And some I always maybe wind up drinking, uh, but I knew that drinking wasn't the problem. It was all these other things. There's words to that effect. And I remember thinking, my God, that's the first time I ever heard anybody describe me. Now that isn't an unusual talk in AA. I must have heard it a hundred times. But I never listened to what they said in I just looked at my watch how to get out of there because I was trying to do something. And this, I thought, my God, that guy feels the way I feel. And yet, he is doing good and he thinks he's an alcoholic now and he's fitting in good. How does he do that? How is he doing that? He's as bad as I am. And the net result of that is I developed a begrudging respect for him. And the result of that was, I began doing things he told me. Not because I thought they were any good, I thought they were stupid, and I thought A was stupid. But I wanted him to like me. So I began brown-nosing him and doing things he told me. And the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is this. The actions here don't care why you take them. If you take them, you're going to get better. And little by little, I got a little bit better and a little bit better. I I know that I was getting better. It just seemed to me the world was not as unfriendly as it used to be. Because that's my perception of life to this day almost. I, I know how I'm doing by how they look. If they all look pretty good, I'm doing pretty good. If they all look crappy, there's something wrong in my perception. And i got to find out what it is. And that's why I go still I tell newcomers this, I you know why I go to meetings? I don't do it for me, I do it for you, so you look better to me, you silly bastard, you know. <laughs> and uh little by little and he got me to do things. I mean he wasn't kind to me. I mean I'd say to him, Bob, I've been sober three weeks and I'm living in an abandoned car in the parking lot. And I know it's it's no big deal, but I you know, I'm a I'm an intelligent, sensitive person. I've been successful, and this I can't live like this. I'm hungry sometimes, cold a lot of the time. What can I do? He said, "Get a job." <laughs> I said, "Get a job." <laughs> look how terrible I look, Bob. He said, 
get a terrible job. <laughs> I followed that direction to the hill. I was a busboy and a ditch digger briefly uh, one day till I realized the pick was not going into the ground and just bouncing back up. <laughs> and I got fired off jobs. I had a smart mouth, but little by little I stayed sober. When I was about six months sober, I went through a terrible dip. And I, I just decided to kill myself. I just got fired as a dishwasher. What's the sense of even trying? And my sponsor took that. I could have called him up say goodbye, and he took that pain and used it to get me to write an inventory that I swore I'd never write. I took my inventory to the psychiatrist. So I took an out-of-work actor. But I was so desperate to use that pain, got me to write an inventory, and he took me along the Pacific Coast Highway from up to Oxnard, gave me you know, a type uh, Flash, I'd have thought of it. Shut up, Doc. <laughs> I should, I look, just see what she's signing you. Flashlight, that's it. Flashlight. <laughs> and I, you know, and I'd written it under, I was so upset that I wrote it, I put in those things I never told even my psychiatrist. Just dirty, rotten. Somebody said, why don't you tell your psychiatrist those things? And the answer is simple. When you're paying that kind of money, you can't risk rejection. That's why you don't tell your I don't want some little wimpy puke to say to me, you did what, sir? Get out of my office. <laughs> but take a moment and wash off that chair first. <laughs> and I got to Oxford, I think, this guy's going to make me walk all the way back. That's 40 miles. I said, well, that's all there is, Bob. He said, that's good. Are you done now? I said, is that the best thing you've done since you got sober? And I said, thought it was. <laughs> I've taken that same trip over 200 times since then, sometimes with people in this room tonight. And I'm on the driver's side, and some other puke over there with a flashlight. Well, let, let me explain this part before I read it. One of the great interesting things about AA is how similar all emo, all fifth steps are, fourth steps, at, not at any level you can see, but the level way down deep, the things that are present in every good inventory, resentment and lack of self-worth and almost a failure syndrome in which you defeat yourself again and again and hatred and all. And it's just and one week a few years ago I listened to the daughter of the, one of the most famous men in the 20th century, and a few days later, from a guy named Ramon Peña, born under a bridge, didn't know his father was. was same, same emotions. Different to, different. He lived in a 12-step house, and she lived in a, in a penthouse in Los Angeles. That's what makes A so remarkable, because what is here works at that level. It doesn't work on the superficial level that we look different. It works at a level that we got to get to, and desperation helps us get there. And little by little over the years, I, uh, he had me take not over the years, but soon thereafter, I began making amends to my father, a man I hadn't talked to in 10 years because he owed me amends big time, and I had to make amends to him. And, just, and did a lot of crappy things, and little by little, I got working and holding jobs and became little by little successful. I was not a rocket to start, like some people. I was very slow. I'd go ahead a while, and then my mouth or my emotions would back up. And just, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but little by little, I stayed sober. And I began working with people when I was new because p crazy people identified with me for some reason I could not <laughs> identify. I got to be known as kind of the last house on the block for idiots. <laughs> Hi, Tom. 
I'm just kidding. Tom was a good man. And so that's what, what I had to come to realize this. I had to come to realize the most important thing that my sponsor taught me with my actions is this. He taught me that I was an alcoholic. Now, how could I be an alcoholic when my problem is not alcohol? Never was. How could I take the first step where you admit you're an alcoholic? And he had to point out to me roughly, he and a guy named John Sullivan. They gave me a seminar over a period of time and put it in about three or four minutes. Well, you can't take the first step because you're not an alcoholic, is that right? I said, that's right, Bob. I'm not trying to fool you, I'm trying to be honest. He says, why in the first step does it say you're an alcoholic? Well, it doesn't actually say so, Bob, but that's what it means, and you know it, and I know it. He says, why don't you just try the black parts on the page for a while? She says, you admit you're powerless over alcohol. Do you think you're powerless over alcohol? Not really. He says, what do you think powerless means? He says, oh, Jesus Christ, you hear these guys, they're talking, meeting, they get drunk and they rape nuns and fly to Hong Kong and hold the banks. And I'm just a good guy, Bob, that's been hurt a lot. <laughs> I don't think it means that at all. It's something entirely different. He says, kid, it's this. All the, for the longest people have been drinking, it seems like 8 or 9 or 10% of them get an unnatural reaction to alcohol. But they don't know it's an unnatural reaction to alcohol because nobody has nothing compared against. What do you think that unnatural effect is? It makes them act crazy and do goofy things, I guess. Nah. It's just the opposite. That's podium talk. It has to do something special for them, for them, that it doesn't do for most people. It must little by little almost instantly alter their perception of reality for the better. Uh, yeah, but what's the big deal about that? <laughs> he says it doesn't do that for most people. Most people get dizzy and hot after a while. I don't want any more. But not these people. I said, well, what's wrong with that, Bob? Jesus, to be able to do that when you feel really bad. He says the problem is this. If it does this for you, sooner the, the, the problem is this. You can do it for a while. But eventually it starts to do something to you, too. And every time you drink, you start to play Russian roulette. Every time people like these drink after a while. And when you're young and strong, there's a lot of empty shells in there. And you get by. <laughs> I got, all, got in from bar last night at 5 o'clock. Had took a shower and went to work. Jeez, what a night. <laughs> Click. Ran across this woman in a bar last night that I knew before. She waited for him outside the men's room. I had to go out the men's room window to get out of there. Jeez, what a beast. <laughs> Click. But every so often he hit a loaded shell too. John left his bar last night. This guy snatched my glasses off and I powdered him one. We rolled around the ground in the spit and gaboon and just terrible. The cops came and arrested me. Jesus, what terrible. I'm not going back to lefties ever again. That's a terrible bar. Boom. Yeah. But the trouble is, as you go along, kid, he said, uh, some sinister force puts more and more shells in that baby. That's all. Boom. And they wind up like you. Boom. Jesus. <clears throat> Boom. Jesus. Boom. There's a click in here somewhere. Boom. All you got to admit that you can't control it. I said, that's right, Bob, but that is the reason my life is screwed up. My life is painful for an entirely different reason than alcoholics. 
The drinking does not do it. It's the being sober. It's, that's why I drink, for God's sakes. He said, kid, it, that's exactly what it says. It says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash. In the English language, dash means end of thought, beginning of new thought. Maybe that's why you haven't made it as a writer. <laughs> he said, now you've got to admit that your life is unmanageable. Do you think your life's unmanageable? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> he says, you're living in an abandoned car, for Christ's sake. You know, if I wanted your advice on things, I'd put my head in the back window and ask you for it. <laughs> you're a loser, kid. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. He's out in Malibu, the richest man in America, sits in AA meetings three or four nights a week. Uh, and he can buy chains of treatment centers and chains of hospitals and all the counselors and all the doctors. And he goes to AA meetings. Why do you think he does that? She says, Bob beats me. He says, because he feels that he's getting better treatment there and understanding his problem. All of us live in a world where we grow up with problems and victories and defeats and ups and downs and all these things and conflicts and and people have to work their way through painful situations and find a way out and some people are very fortunate they find when they run across painful situations they can have a few drinks and get rid of them ah, and maybe tomorrow we'll bring a new set of problems but at least get rid of those and that's great except if it does this for you little by little you'll get to a point where drinking gets to be a problem and now you're going to quit. And then you see the bad news. Those conflicts that you left irresolved are waiting for you. The emotions have not grown up. He said the curse of this, is, I mentioned this the other night, wound up grown up bodies, grown up brains, grown up strength, grown up verbal thrills, skills, all at the intermittent beck and call of childish emotions that you can't explain. And eventually make your life painful again and full of conflict. And eventually it gets bad. And you know there's one way to get over it. Have a few drinks, but this time it will be different. Then drinking gets to be bad, and then you got to get sober. But you can't stay sober, so you got to drink. He said, the only thing right you said is that your problem isn't alcohol. And it isn't. I said, it isn't? He said, it's something that sounds like alcohol. It kills a lot of people because they don't know the difference. It is something called alcoholism. I said, Jesus, Bob, that's the same thing. Alcohol, alcoholism, that's just a phrase. He said, no, entirely different. That's why people die from it, kid. An alcohol problem is overcome by stopping drinking and cleaning up your act. You've done that a lot of times. But in this strange thing called alcoholism, this which looks the same to the naked eye, this mind-consuming, bodily-distorting, perception-ruining thing, you'll discover sooner or later that stopping drinking and cleaning up your act has no significant long-term effect on your life other than to gradually make it so painful you can't stand it. In fact, scientists who study alcoholics say you get to a point where you must drink to preserve your sanity. I said, Jesus, Bob, that's me. He said, there's a name for people like you. Said, what is it, Bob? <laughs> he said, you're an alcoholic. And I said, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> I had just given the ten best years of my life, and I went from top to bottom down to being a street bum because I could not find a definition of alcoholic that seemed to fit me that I could believe in. 
And I believed at that day, and I think I did something I read later in chapter 3. I didn't know I was doing it. I conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. And since that day, I have never had a severe desire to drink alcohol. And you think, well, isn't that wonderful? His life got all better. No, it really didn't. My life was tough. I lost jobs, and a couple times in my early sobriety, I contemplated suicide. When my family came back after I was five years sober, his wife and children came join rejoined me, and everybody was so happy for me, and I was happy for me. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I went from living alone and conducting my life in AA to here's a whole bunch of kids and dogs and cats and a wife telling me what I should be doing and on and on. And the conflict was, I never, we've got, we reunited five or six times in cities and every time I got drunk within a short time. And I thought I was going to get drunk this time. And I, I came out of work one night and I just couldn't face it. And I turned left, I get in my car and I ran away. Ran all the way to, I stopped in Indio finally. And I thought, I can't do this. This is not what A is about. And I called my sponsor, and he said, come on now and talk to me. And we went back and talked. And I got home about 5, and I took a shower and went to work again. And it, problems, of course, problems. When I was 10 years sober, I worked extended myself. I was going to have to go bankrupt. and just barely beat it because I just tightened my belt, and somebody beat me on a lot of money and things like that. Now, why wouldn't I ever think about drinking? I'll tell you why. You think, well... Afraid to cost you your family? No. When you're ready to drink, you know, we want your family to be gone. and All these people are screwing around. The thing that has always stood between me and drinking is this. I know if I'm an alcoholic, which I believe I am, for me to drink one glass of beer, one bottle of that damn old duels that non-alcoholic beer with alcohol in it, one glass, it's funny, but it isn't funny. People, a lot of people started on that stuff. One glass of wine, one martini, one anything, one sip of somebody else's cocktail. In my case, to take one Prozac, to take one thing that will change my perception of reality, to do this means that sooner or later, next week, next month, five years from now, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be standing on the corner somewhere. I'm going to watch myself trip up my own sleeve, and there isn't going to be anybody who gives a damn whether I live or die. And that is the worst feeling I know. So my sponsor really got me to take action that eventually got me to believe in him and eventually got me to believe in AA, got me to believe I was an alcoholic. I could not return to God, but he pointed out I didn't have to return to God. I had to come to believe in something. And he suggested I believe in him if all else failed. And I believed in him. And he became my higher power. People laughed at that, but it saved my life. And little by little I took actions and uh, I came to believe in AA as my higher power. And uh, eventually, listening to people talk over the years, over a period of time, talking about God maybe loved me, and I came to believe that maybe God didn't really hate me all the time, and I prayed. And I've been praying earnestly for over 40 years. And I don't know that any prayer I ever got, said got out of the room. I never, because I've never prayed for anything. I'm such a phony bastard, I don't dare pray for anything. I pray for knowledge of God's will for me and the strength to carry it out, because I don't dare pray for anything. I'll start dickering and dealing, because I'm a terrible hustler. And little by little, I've come, come to believe in God. But I never returned to God. I'm so glad I discovered you don't return to God because you have a misperception and a distorted, immature attitude about God. You come to believe in a God that loves you. And I believe he loves me. And I believe he loves you. And I believe he loves all of us exactly the same. And the reason some of us lie on the sidewalk and some of us step over him is because I got desperate enough to take actions I didn't agree with, and they won't. It just boils down to that. 
You can give me all the psychic information and the psychological backgrounds and the insights, but it really boils down to this. The losers here are people who have not gotten desperate enough to take actions that they don't believe in. And some of them die before they get that desperate. A lot of them do. And it's still bad. And you want to just shake them and say, for Christ's sake, there's a way out. Leave me alone. You don't understand. Give me, get away. Because AA tonight, because of sponsorship, is exactly the same at this conference in Seattle on August 31st, 19, or 2002, as it was June 10th, 1935 in Akron, Ohio. I said this the other day and I say it again. It's not what we have here. It's not the book. It's not the spirit. All these things are nice, but they are addendums. What we have here is one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic to help him identify at least enough so that he'll begin to take actions he does not yet agree with. And that's the beginning of sobriety. So I think that's what the great value of all times of sponsorship. Someone I can believe knows how I feel. And therefore, his information becomes advice. And if I don't believe you know how I feel, it's just information, and I shut it. Who cares? I've been getting advice all my life. But if you know how I feel, and you think I should do something about it, I will say thank you. And I hope that all of us will take that advice from as we need it. And I hope that as we give advice to people, we'll think carefully, I know how this person feels, and here's what he or she must do and to save their life, not for my own ego, but for the sake of feeling like there is some meaning to my existence. If I got nothing else out of AA, I really have not become anything very much. But by God, I found a meaning for my life. And that's the nicest gift I ever got. I hope we all stay here forever. Thank you.